and you're going to see something that's quite startling. It's in Matthew 10, 5 to 8. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Look it. Do you see this? Enter no town of the Samaritans. He's, he goes to this Samaritan woman, touches her life in so many ways. Now he's sending out his disciples about a year later, and he says, don't you go anywhere near any Samaritan towns. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. So what are you going to make of this? Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans. Why this difference between Jesus' own ministry earlier and the one he's prescribing for his own disciples? Why does he minister to Samaritan people, bless this woman, and tell his disciples, don't go anywhere near them? With that, I want to get into the text. Point number one, Jesus labored to overcome a deeply entrenched spiritual blindness even in his first disciples. I think there are two reasons Jesus did this. One is minor, the other is more major. Here's the minor reason. Jesus recognized the attitude of long-established hatred in his first Jewish disciples. We might not have taken much note of it, but I'm sure Jesus saw the dark prejudice of the hearts of his disciples on a couple of occasions. Let me show you one of them in Luke 9, 51 to 55. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, ascended. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. See, same, there it is. His disciples see this. Now, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, there you go. James and John. John's going to write this letter. James is going to pastor a big church, Jerusalem. Jesus, we got an idea. We've been casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. It's no big deal. We'll just, let's call fire down on these. And they don't mean revival. Let's just incinerate these Samaritans. And they, and what, what, was, what was in Jesus' head? They think they're saying something Jesus is going to approve of. Here's an idea. Needless to say, it's not the best attitude for evangelism. And it doesn't easily rinse out of our hearts. Consider 
man, consider even the, the, the prejudice we see in the world around us. You see it all the time. And Jesus doesn't want future ministry to the Samaritans to be put in jeopardy by hatred of the Samaritans and other Gentiles. The Jews who first admired and followed Jesus, get this, those who first admired and followed Jesus used their love for God's law to promote hatred of the Samaritans. Did you hear that? Use their love for God's law to promote hatred for the Samaritans. And that kind of warped holiness. It isn't hard to find. It's easy to justify hatred of the sinner along with the sinner's sin. It's easy to do. Now, Jesus would eventually lead his disciples out of this spiritual blindness. Later, after a lot of teaching and the complete revelation of the Messiah's anointing, death, and resurrection, we find a much more complete and developed instruction regarding the missions of Jesus' disciples. Luke 22, 44 to 48. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened to their minds the understanding of the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I said earlier there were two reasons for Jesus' instructions for his disciples not to take their mission initially to the Samaritans. Now, to see the second reason, I want you to look again at his, his instructions. Matthew 10, 5 to 8. Still with me? These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, give without pay. So these instructions aren't instructions against the Gentiles or the Samaritans. These are carefully structured words designed to show the link between Jesus and God's old covenant people, Israel. Jesus is trying to teach them that the mission has to start with the Jews. Why? In order to make it perfectly clear that Israel's calling and purpose were manifested and completed in him. Go to the Jews first. Why? So that everyone will see. This will be recorded. People in 2023 are going to see and understand that it was always the old covenant. All of that was designed to point to Father God and the provision of redemption for all the nations and all the people of the earth. This is quite specifically what Paul meant in words we so often quote. You know these words. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone. who It's for everyone, right? To the Jew first. 
Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the Jews first and also the Greek. This is not because God loves the Jews more. That's not the issue. Rather, it's to reveal how the divine flow, the plan of redemption from old covenant to new, how it takes place. We're, we're taught to see Jesus' work not as something brand new, isolated, an unplanned event. We're to see it as the completion of all that had gone before. This is God's plan to make the rejection of Jesus Christ inexcusable. Because he doesn't just come. He comes with hundreds and hundreds of years of testimony that was all pointing to him. And he wants to make sure that that gets through. Point number two. Spiritual hunger can't be manufactured or sustained apart from a growing knowledge of God's revelation. Let me read that again. Spiritual hunger. Think of all the time we think about the hunger in the heart for God, in our worship, in our praying, coming to church. Hunger for God. I mean, I hope that's why you're here. We hunger for God. Spiritual hunger can't be manufactured. You can't just create it. And it can't be sustained apart from growing knowledge of God's revelation. Look at this again. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, one, and who it is that is saying to you, that's two, two things, if she knew. Who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well's deep. Where where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself. Jacob, she's a Jew, drank from this well. That carries a lot of weight to this woman. He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. There are two things this woman needed desperately to know. One, I showed him to you already. If you knew the gift of God, that's one thing she needed to know. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, that's the second thing she doesn't know. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Don't rush over those words. What's What is holding this woman back from divine grace? What keeps her messed up in her moral life? Jesus is going to point that out. From what what, what keeps her morally messed up life from the refreshing, gracious, cleansing power of living water? Is it, 
Is it, I'll ask the question, is she just too messed up for Jesus to be able to help? Let's vote on it. How many say no? How many say she's too messed up? Okay, it's carried. She's not too messed up. Has Jesus written her off? Because, well, she's a Samaritan. No, that's not it either. The text doesn't even let you go down that road. She's held back by what she doesn't know. If you knew. So so her heart, like your heart, like my heart, her heart is tethered to her mind. Her heart is tethered to her understanding. She can't embrace what she doesn't understand. She can't receive what she doesn't know. There isn't enough in her mind for her to make meaningful repentance in her heart, mind, heart. This has to come first. If you knew, if you knew, you'd ask, you'd receive. Why aren't you asking? Well, you don't know. What comes first, mind or heart? Has to, has to. Mind and heart. There isn't enough in her mind for her to make a meaningful repentance in her heart and a meaningful commitment with her will. Mind, heart, will. Please don't write me off or get upset when I say that there are scores of people in, I don't mean this church, although I'm sure including it, in the church, scores of people who simply don't know enough to be deeply serious followers of Jesus. They've been told for so long, and it's kind of a truth, they've been told so long that it isn't head knowledge, but heart knowledge that God is after, that they've forgotten or haven't been told enough that, yes, it is heart knowledge that God is after, and yes, it takes more than a smart brain to please God. I get it. That's all true, but... Heart knowledge is impossible without a growing foundation of understanding in the mind. We should have known it just from reading our Bibles. May grace and peace, I like this. How many would like to have grace and peace multiplied in your life? Well, yeah, put me down. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the Say that one. In the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But go in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. How does this happen? How do you grow in grace? Well, it's there. The last text is the most specific. Exactly how does the growth of divine grace happen in Don Horbin's heart? Because I need a lot of grace. How does it grow? How is its effect deepened and appreciated and cherished? Peter's conclusion, it's just too clear. Grace grows as knowledge grows. People who ignore this will be trapped in the common deception that they can work 
that they can work up a love for Jesus by striving for some kind of romantic state when they sing the right song. Which is important, by the way. That kind of worship is very important, but it can't be the starting point. Brace yourself. When I was thinking about this, I went to the most obvious source. First thing that would come to your mind if you're thinking about worship and understanding in the contemporary church, of course, you go to 1722 Jonathan Edwards. A caution. I I have, over the years, grown to love Jonathan Edwards. It takes that long to love Jonathan Edwards. Reading Jonathan Edwards is not like reading Charles Swindoll. Modern writers are succinct and pithy, and they get right to the point, and they say it quick and sharp and attractive. That's good writing. These writers put a sentence together thinking about every objection everybody might have and answering it in the one sentence. So when I read this to you, even if you don't like it, you're going to be able to go home from church and say, we were the only church in Ontario that read a quote from Jonathan Edwards in the morning service. Listen to how brilliant he is. Now, like, you have to work. Listen to how brilliant he is. He's writing about the relationship between understanding how God is glorified. God is glorified by understanding truth in the mind. But that's not enough. There are two ways God is glorified. Understanding truth in the mind, step one, and then rejoicing in truth in the heart. If you just have, you know, a download of truth that you understand with the mind, it's intellectualism. If you just try and work up some kind of euphoric, romantic state, that's emotionalism. Both are incomplete. Now let me read you Edwards. You ready? Now think. So God glorifies himself towards the creature in two ways. One, by appearing to them, being manifested to their understandings. And two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestation which he makes of himself. They, both of them, may be called his glory in the more extensive sense of the word. By one way, it goes forth towards the understanding. By the other, it goes forth toward their wills and hearts. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, okay, understanding, being seen. Uh, Where did I go? Not only being seen, but by being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it. God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both the understanding and by the heart. That is just 
So important. So God gets glory if we walk out of here and you say, I think I see what Pastor Don was saying. God gets glory if we all go out and say, that's really good truth. Now I know it. He gets a certain degree of glory, but not as much glory as when we say, I see what that verse is. I see what that verse is. Man, oh man, that is magnificent about God. And our soul and our hearts and our emotions, it's not emotionalism because it's rooted in the truth. Both are tragically incomplete. And here's what happens. You got your denominations, whole denominations. We don't do that raising hand stuff, you crazy charismatics. We're, praise God, we are just Bible people. Like we just make everything up. (laughs) We're Bible people. Then you got other places, you know, you got to go to the hottest place in town because the fire's falling and people are dancing and waving their arms and jumping up and down. And, and it's, we have the real fire, Pastor. Now, we're not one of those churches where you have stuffy head knowledge. That's never going to get you there. And see the camps that form? You see the camps that form? You see what Edwards, who doesn't have a charismatic bone in his body, complete cessationist. But what he's saying is, here's how God gets the most glory. The glory of truth understood and a heart that sings about it. Then God gets double glory. I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful point. Three. This woman is missing what's eternal because she's preoccupied with what is temporary. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, will, it's not good English, but it's the Greek literally, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water. Not that there's anything wrong with coming to the well for water. It's not a sin to be thirsty. Jesus came, right? That's how this starts. He's thirsty. He wants to drink water. That's not the problem. The problem is she can't get past her physical thirst. The problem is she is so preoccupied with the water in Jacob's well to the point that she can't hunger for anything deeper. Church, that's what earthly appetites do. They aren't all wicked and sinful and bad, but that's what earthly appetites do. The more I indulge them, the more they diminish my capacity for giving attention to bigger realities. 
even the word of God faithfully proclaimed. Jesus said it's very hard for the seed of the word to overcome needs and interests that appear to have more immediate importance. Here's where Jesus said that. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears hears the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. The the problem here, we can see the point in Jesus' parable. The problem is the word doesn't compete well with earthly concerns and the love of wealth. That's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying, that's that's the cutting edge of the parable. The cutting edge of the parable is when the word gets into my heart, it won't compete well with other desires I might have. So so what that means is, for me, it might not be enough for me to kneel by my bed, opening up my my, my Bible and studying it, because that's just taking the word in. But if there's other things growing in my heart, according to Jesus, this loses. It's not that the word chokes out the concerns of this world and the love of wealth, right? That's not what Jesus says. He says, the concerns of this world and the love of wealth choke the word. The word loses. That's what Jesus is saying. So for me, studying the word in a fruitful way, it will be recognizing dawn. You need to read your Bible knowing the kind of heart you bring to it. You follow what I mean there? You have to know the kind of heart that you bring to it. And the kind of heart I have until I see Jesus face to face is one that easily treasures other things even while it reads the word. Here's this woman. Here's this woman. Two feet from Jesus. And the well water is more important to her than the living water. What this means is it takes, as with the words of Jesus to this woman, it takes a supernatural work to bring about a recognition of the two great needs we all have. Jesus can get nowhere with this woman until he reveals two things. First, He shows her the sin in her life by revealing her immoral lifestyle. I didn't read it. It's in 16, 17, and 18. Why is he doing that? Well, her sin is a bigger, more serious problem than her thirst. Please think about this for a minute. Because it's striking. Here's Jesus. He's probably never met this woman before, right? As far as we know, never met her before. This is his very first encounter with her. And in his very first conversation with a woman he's never met before, he cannot let her go without saying, you've been immoral. And he points that out to her. And I'm thinking, 
I don't think I would approach it that way. Like, I think I'd try and build more of a relationship. Like, it's not, it isn't really that seeker sensitive, is it? In your first conversation with a woman you've never met before, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with right now, that's not your husband. I said there were two things Jesus said to this woman. First, her sin, she needs to repent. Secondly, he reveals to her that if she's ever to reach God in worship and relationship, she must come to terms with who he is, the Messiah. Jesus tells her that religious tradition and devotion apart from himself as the living water is going to come up empty. Moral improvement. Your yoga classes. Whatever author you're reading. Whatever religious experience you bring to the table. Jesus says to this devout woman, you you need to know who I am. You need to know who I am. The proof of a genuine relationship with Christ, point number four. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him and his will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We're, we're, we're drawn back to the issue the apostle John, he just can't leave alone. His whole gospel is written, chapter 20, he says, so that people might believe. These things are written that you might believe who Jesus is. He can't leave it alone. Even as he records this conversation, what exactly is faith in Jesus Christ? How do I know if I have it? That's the point of verses 13 and 14. What's what's the result of really knowing Jesus? Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord it isn't something cold. It isn't something static. It isn't listening to a lecture from a pulpit. It's a constantly moving, living, active, forceful, and in this text, above all, it's a satisfying devotion. And here's the biggest take-home from church truth biggest take home from church truth. Faith in Jesus Christ, if it's genuine, makes all other loves diminish in comparison. We'll we'll never be thirsty forever. That's how you know. How do you know if you've drunk deeply of life in Christ? You'll never be thirsty for other. There'll be other things in your life. But you'll always recognize them. In terms of satisfying your soul, you'll always recognize them as being secondary. You'll always recognize them as being secondary. Faith in Jesus changes the kind of people you can be happy emulating. Faith in Jesus changes the kind of entertainment you can watch with pleasure and acceptance. 
Faith in Jesus changes the direction of your pursuits from the satisfying of your own desires to what brings glory and joy to Father God's heart. Faith in Jesus means you'll start love going to church with like-minded devotees who love Jesus with all their heart as well because those are the kind of people you want to be with. In other words, when I say I believe in Jesus, what I'm saying, if I mean it the way the New Testament means it, I'm saying I'm permanently spoiled for satisfying the deepest thirsts of my life, deepest thirsts of my life anywhere else. My heart has found home. Don't make it anything less than that. Don't make it, we'll never be thirsty forever. We have Christ. Christ.